0: During the mid-1960s, a 30-something year old Australian widow living just outside of Melbourne, Australia, had decided to take on yoga to refine meaning in her life after just losing her entire family. Now, this woman's name was Anne Hebbleton Byrne. And once she had found the right yoga class that she belonged to, she began to discover these all kinds of different spiritual teachings, philosophies, and connecting universal beliefs to a higher power. Now, the more that Anne had learned about these foundations with yoga, the more obsessed she had become with it. Sooner or later... Anne would then become a yoga instructor herself. Nothing wrong with that. Although, Anne would not hold the typical yoga class that you expect to go to on an early Saturday morning or after a long and difficult day at work. Because oftentimes, Anne would share her greater knowledge and spirituality with her class and her students, often being 60s housewives. And these women would all become very fascinated with Anne. Fast forward to a couple years later, Anne would then decide to start her own yoga school. Now, calling what Anne had created being a quote-unquote yoga school may not be the proper term because being that Anne was very confident and persuasive, these students would start to eventually become her cult followers fast forward to a couple more years and that once lonesome middle class 30 something year old looking to start a new life would become one of Australia's most terrifying female cult leaders and a very wealthy one at that. Not only but Anne would also finally create the perfect family using her followers to steal babies to call her own i did say just babies yeah that's what we're getting into today what Anne would do to her followers and stolen children will leave you in shock by the end of this case and you'll truly see what a horrific monster this woman was in the 30 years of leading the cult known as the family australia's most notorious cult I'm your host, Kendall Hudson, and welcome to another episode of When the Light Goes Out. I typically hear about cults, utopian societies, or sects, when I say sects, by the way, I mean S-E-C-T-S, not (laughs) S-E-X, it's typically about that one man that found a religion or spiritual group, got kicked out, or would willingly leave, and then start their own spiritual group, quote-unquote, which would normally result in some sort of doomsday cult or political cult. The cults that we normally hear about are the Mason family, for one, infamously known for murdering seven people over the course of two nights to start a race war, which was led by Charles Manson, Heaven's Gate, where founder Marshall Applewhite convinced his members that he was the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that the end of the world was upon them, and that God was an alien, which resulted in the mass suicide of 39 people, or 39 of its members, I should say, found all suffocated to death. Or even the People's Temple. Ever heard of the saying, don't drink the Kool-Aid? Well, this was when alleged preacher Jim Jones had founded the People's Temple in 1955 in Anneapolis, later moving his mess of cult to Guyana out of paranoia. This is all eventually resulting in the murder of the U.S. congressman, Leo Ryan, who visited to retrieve any members too afraid to leave the cult, and almost immediately after, Jones had instructed his followers to drink flavor aid that had been laced with cyanide, and days later, the U.S. military would discover the mass suicide of over 900 followers. Although some of these cults were co-founded by women, today's case solely focuses on how one woman had managed to create a commune-like cult from the ground up. So, let's get into the case. Alright, so the main character of this case is Anne Hamilton Byrne, who was actually born Evelyn Victoria Edwards. Completely different from her own, but it'll make sense why she changed it in just a little bit. But throughout this case, let's just refer to her as Anne. Anne was born December 30th, 1921, in Sale, a town in Victoria, Australia. This was a very small farming town with one main road, not very far from the city of Melbourne, and Anne's early life is honestly pretty tragic. Anne was the oldest of seven children, and nothing about her home life was very stable, unfortunately. Her father, Ralph Edwards, was from the inner city of Melbourne and had been honorably discharged from the army during World War II during... Anne was the oldest of seven children, and nothing about her home life was very stable... Her father, Ralph Edwards, was from the inner city Melbourne and had been honorably discharged from the army during World War II due to poor health. He was an absent father that could never keep a job. He will always be the type to vanish for a long period of time and then what randomly often just pop up, get Anne's mother Florence pregnant and just leave again. Eventually, by the time Anne was around the age of three, he completely up and abandoned Florence and their children. Anne's mother, Florence Hoyle, was a South Londoner known to be, quote-unquote, the town's crazy lady with seven kids, which unfortunately should have just been known as mental illness. Florence, Anne's mother, had once set her own hair on fire in the street and had told people in town that she had had the ability to speak to the dead. Anne's mother would later be diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and then sent to a psych ward where she be held for 27 years, and where she eventually passed away. This sort of put Anne, especially as the oldest, in place to look after her siblings, only to be practically a baby herself, but she'd ultimately just be in and out of orphanages for the rest of her childhood. And that part is just really sad because thinking about any child that has to go through something where their parents just aren't there mentally or physically, it's a lot. And it's very straining, I'm sure, to her and her siblings. There isn't a ton known about her remaining childhood or about her siblings. The information I found on Anne sort of just kind of skipped into her 20s. So here we are. The time is 1941, and Anne is in her early 20s looking for a fresh start apart from her orphan life. It was around this time when Anne really wanted to start aiming towards that picture-perfect life and having a glamorous one at that, with a husband and tons of children, and she soon would meet an eligible bachelor by the name of Lionel Harris. They began dating, dating would turn into marriage, and they eventually would buy a house in Victoria, and Anne would also give birth to a baby girl named Judith. So everything is just kind of really turning out great for Anne at this point. This is what she wanted. This is kind of the nice thing that could happen after having a long, difficult childhood of being in orphanages throughout her life. So later on, the two decide they want to look into having a second child, but this time Anne wants to adopt. I'd say Anne was kind of in her 30s by this time and she wanted to adopt, so her and her husband Lionel had arranged to adopt a child with a local adoption agency by the name of Bernardo's Homes. Well, at the time, Lionel was a traveling salesman and he had been traveling to the Bernardo's children's home after learning that the happy couple had been approved and cleared to adopt a baby boy. Lionel, unfortunately, never made it to the home to pick up the baby boy. He had died in a very fatal car accident on the way there. Sad to say, not only is this terrible, but in addition to this, the adoption center would revoke Anne's adoption after finding out that Lionel's death had happened, being that most adoption agencies did not approve of a child being sent to live with only one parent. Of course, this is all devastating for Anne, and so she decides to move on the only way she knows how, by starting off fresh. So this is that second time that she's starting off fresh. She's really getting her mind right, and of course, for anyone, this would be a lot. So she does this by legally changing her name from Evelyn Victoria Edwards, formally to Anne Hamilton. So now we know why she changed her name, and... Unfortunately, that story behind it is just really, really devastating. And this comes full circle to the 1960s when Anne discovers yoga. Yoga's origins date back to thousands of years ago, bringing harmony to the mind and body for millions that practice. Although, it is not really until the 1950s and 60s when the practice had been introduced to Western civilization. Yoga was still seen as odd and weird at the time, but Anne went to one class and was instantly drawn to its connections with Eastern religion. She started learning more through research and even her own instructor about spirituality through meditation, Eastern philosophies, and soon she had honed in on these practices enough to become her own yoga teacher in Melbourne. Anne's classes were very popular and gained traction rather quickly at the yoga facility that she had worked at. The classes attracted middle-aged women, mostly of Jewish faith, and they were also very wealthy. Just as quickly as these women had joined, many began to be drawn into the preachings that Anne added into her classes. Anne would preach about New Age philosophy, which seemed to be a mixture of Christianity, Hinduism, and Buddhism, with the faith of her preachings granted promise of immortality and good karma. So you might be asking, how did these women believe all of this? Well, these 60s wives were most of the time housewives and they were already not super happy in their relationships with their husbands and Anne was super convincing. Anne was somebody that they could fall back on and someone that they looked to and Anne would convince them to leave their marriages and follow her. In addition to this, Anne at this time became very obsessed with her image She bought so many expensive clothes and jewelry and a lot of these women would notice that. But on top of that, these women would also notice that she would have immaculate skin. That's because Anne would consistently get facelifts. She would get facelifts, she would get injections, she would get all these different things done. And it's the 60s, keep in mind. So facelifts at this time were not, or basically unheard of. So to them, everything... At face value seem true. She tell these women, quote, where you are now is the season of your unfoldment, unquote. And these clients would just soon become followers with a promise of renewal and a fresh start. This is pretty much what Anne has been focused on all her life is creating these new fresh starts and so now she's really just bringing it to a bigger audience and she's kind of preaching it to them in her own kind of foul way. Eventually the yoga facility that Anne taught her beliefs at found out she was doing way more than just teaching yoga and for that fired her. But this wouldn't stop Anne at all. She would just go on to establish her very own yoga facility and most of those women that were at her classes just followed her to her very own yoga facility. Now, more and more of Anne's clients, or quote-unquote clients, if you will, began seeking to Anne's BS teachings and And would start feeding these women with the most obnoxious things, saying things like she was a family member from a European dynasty and that she had these powers of seeing the dead just like her mother could. And she backed this all up with seances. And like I said, she really leaned in on that immortality point because she was getting those facelifts, plastic surgeries, and Botox behind their backs. And it was at the time when, like I said, when most people did not know it was a thing. By 1962, Anne really began to notice how much she was impacting these women, so she thought about it and she said, it's probably about time I start recruiting men into this now legitimate cult. Through some connections from Anne's followers, and remember to keep in mind that these followers are very high class citizens and had been directed to a University of Melbourne professor, Dr. Reiner Johnson, who had also been the head of Queens College. Now, one thing to know about Dr. Johnson is that this guy was very intelligent, very smart, he all around was very well known, he had been pretty important as a person, and Dr. Johnson at the time, and had found him, was close to retiring his long and successful career in physics and was also beginning to turn to eastern religion and mysticism. He was looking for a teacher to help guide his journey through spiritualism and ironically <laughs> knocking at his door around this time was our leading lady Anne Hamilton. Not only was Rainer Johnson's belief in the spiritual and supernatural world music to Anne's ears, but Dr. Johnson was a very powerful and intelligent source for her cult, and he could help her recruit very powerful others that would help her make connections. Now, at this point, Dr. Johnson had absolutely no idea who this woman was, and it sucks to say that Anne had a pretty intricate technique a way of fooling those around her. So prior to knocking on his front door, Anne had found someone that was mm, constantly around Dr. Johnson to get inside info from him. Anne just so happens to run into Dr. Johnson's gardener. They meet, they mingle, they end up hooking up, and afterwards, they have some pillow talk about who he works for, and that being Dr. Rainer Johnson. So what this gardener tells her is that he works for this man that is very intelligent, looking to end his career soon, and is a physicist, and that he and his wife had planned on vacationing in India, specifically because he always hears Johnson talking about his excursions and vacations with this newfound spirituality. So Anne takes this information, knocks on Dr. Johnson's front door, and introduces herself as a woman named Anne Hamilton that has seen visions of him, because, you know, she's clairvoyant like her mother, quote unquote, and claims she saw him on vacation with his wife where she gets very sick sometime in the coming future, and she had to find him to tell him this. A little too on the nose, if you ask me, but sure enough, the trip had come and went. Johnson's wife had grown very ill from a pretty common airborne illness at the time, and Johnson follows up in awe of Anne's alleged abilities. Now, what really disappoints me to know, in and if you ask me, I don't believe that Johnson was ever a great person, because personally, you'll see why, but I, I do think that Dr. Johnson was very naive, and he was very willing to let the first person that came up to him and told him that they were, you know, able to have these magical abilities, he just believed. And so Johnson would go on to later write in his journals that Anne was, and I quote, unquestionably the wisest and sincerest and most gracious and generous soul I have ever met, unquote. A little crazy to me, but that's, that's factual. The two would become very good friends, Anne would get the two of them to experiment with LSD, which would help further fabricate Anne's fables and lies she'd tell to Rainer, and Rainer Johnson knew he had found his perfect spiritual leader. This is when everything really begins falling into place for Anne because Dr. Rainer Johnson begins contacting his colleagues to meet this fascinating woman that has these psychic abilities and has been gifted with these godly powers and is all-knowing. Now, these colleagues of Johnson's were doctors, nurses, lawyers, politicians, businessmen and women, all interested in seeking new age wisdom, willing to look to Anne for guidance. This is the time period of 1963. Both Reiner Johnson and his wife, Mary Johnson, at this point, are both full-fledged members of the occult Anne was developing, and all around are doing a great job of recruiting those high-class people. Rainer's wife, Mary, was also a very well-educated person having a master's in science from the University of London, and she had her own stack of professionals too. They started to use a property that Rainer Johnson and his wife had owned called the Centineken on the outskirts of Melbourne as the kind of main headquarters. And here, Anne held meetings weekly to deliver lectures on various topics within Hinduism, Buddhism, and Christianity. And she deemed herself on the same playing field or level as the deities, Jesus Christ, Buddha, and Krishna. This is when both Anne Hamilton and Rainer Johnson decide to finally name their lovely cult. And before the cult gets named, the family, they choose to call it... The Great White Brotherhood. I began to think and wonder why they chose the name The Great White Brotherhood. I personally couldn't really tell you. I thought about it too, and I don't know. I thought maybe Raynor Johnson was the one that came up with that name. It was a name that they both came up with according to sources, but... It's a little weird. You come up with a name with Brotherhood in the title. And you have to think, I mean, this is a cult that had started, first of all, with all women. And women already didn't have the kind of voice that they needed. So it was kind of in Anne's favor to be that voice for these women, if that makes sense. So now we need to discuss how all of these people started to believe that Anne was a deity. Being clairvoyant or claiming to have these inhuman powers is one thing, and okay, like, we can get behind that, but how in the world did Anne convince what is nearly almost 200 people now that God is a woman and her name is Anne Hamilton? Well, this is pretty wild. Remember when I had just mentioned how Dr. Johnson had all of these communications and connections, including doctors? Well, one of these doctors was called Marion Bellamick. She had managed the New Haven Hospital, which was primarily a psychiatric hospital, and it's the 1960s, so a lot of psych hospitals used LSD to treat and medicate their patients. And this was one of the drugs that Marion and the other staff at the hospital would use to help Anne and Rainer lure in potential members, not only LSD, but also poison. You may be asking, well, Kendall, how did they manage to get these people to believe that Anne was a god by poisoning them? Well, basically, these doctors would get poisonous chemicals from the hospital. They would lace these skeptical or new followers with their beverages and food that they would offer with poison. And over time, they would get really sick. So Anne would pretty much just bless them and they would just start to be better or they would just start to just be cured of their sicknesses and it would start to feel better so many would really believe that Anne had these healing powers which in reality they would just stop poisoning them isn't that wild you have to think like in order to pull these people in you're poisoning people and by poisoning them you're choosing to get them to believe that you really have something by getting them to feel better By not poisoning them. It's just the craziest thing to me. The other part is the LSD. Now, aside from Marion, there was another member called Lance Whitaker, who had specialized in psychedelic drugs that helped commence this initiation that they would need to have to take place before you would become an official member. So basically how the initiation would work is you would be given LSD, and I'm not even saying like a small amount, you'd be given this Large dose of LSD they would lock you in a single room and it would be pitch black so you would not see a thing around you. There would be a spotlight that would shine and it would shine on Anne and would be in the room with you, which it sounds terrifying so the spotlight would shine directly on Anne and she would just be sitting in that room with you, which sounds terrifying. And basically, the smoke machine would just come out of nowhere. And so you're tripping so hard on this LSC and you're just seeing this happen. All the while, Anne is preaching to you that she is this reincarnation of a higher power. And so a lot of this is just really tricking everyone into thinking that she is a reincarnation of a higher power. So there's that. And that is the initiation itself. But to add... Anne would be given full ownership to that psychiatric hospital. And I'm not kidding, the entire ownership. Apparently, one of the owners of the psychiatric hospital had also been a follower of Anne's and had given all the rights to her after they had passed away. This being extremely terrible because at this time, and I don't know about today, But you only needed two authorizations to be admitted into the ward. So, if you tried leaving the call, if you tried contradicting anything that Ann was doing, or you were suspected of being suspicious or going to authorities, Ann would have you 100% admitted into the psych ward. How crazy is that? In one case, a man by the name of Bill Byrne, a married man with four kids, by the way, had entered into Anne's life out of curiosity for this quote-unquote yoga class, because that's still what we're calling it, by the way. And Anne fell head over heels for this man, and he too for her. By the way, we are in the year of 1968, and both Anne and Bill are around the same age. They're in the mid-40s. So what do they both do? They both end up having this affair. Bill is convinced by Anne to get rid of his wife so what does bill do bill has her admitted into the psych hospital that ann had owned and unfortunately nothing had been wrong with bill's wife but they basically given her all these different drugs and all these different chemicals and all these different things that had pretty much just ruined her and so she's stuck in this ward his wife that By the way, had nothing to do with what was going on between Bill and Anne and their love for this cult. And so that happens, and Bill just up and leaves his four kids. Yeah, he just up and leaves his four kids all together. Now, nearing the 70s, Anne's cult has about mm, 500 followers at this point. Bill and Anne end up getting married, and Anne, on top of this, demands 10% of whatever her members are making. Again, keep in mind, all of her members are very very wealthy, so by this point Anne is pretty much a millionaire. I also found one part of my research which is truly terrifying, where a guy had actually wanted to leave the cult, but couldn't, and he was admitted to the psych ward where he would later receive a lobotomy. And if you're not sure what a lobotomy is, it's pretty much a brain surgery that had become popular in the 1930s. And it's a treatment pretty much that they would give you. And it involves a ice pick that would be kind of lodged into your eye or into your nose that would sever the frontal lobe and other parts of the brain. If that's not scary enough, and at this point being so wealthy just starts buying and accumulating more and more land to basically just outwardly build on her cult. And it's all truly just terrifying because at this point in the story, Anne is truly becoming really known as a huge, huge leader. And it's crazy that she started out being someone that was going from orphanage to orphanage and then wanting to be someone that just had a family to this. And This is the point where, unfortunately, she would begin to imprison and start brainwashing children because that would happen between the 1970s and 80s. But that is going to be what we get to in our next episode. What happens in part two it's truly terrifying because well, not for one it's it's children, but not only is it children, but she does a ton of terrible stuff to these children, and these children go through a lot of a lot of crazy things that the other followers inflict on them. Not only that, but the way she gets caught is truly just crazy in and of itself. And again, it's just crazy because this is a woman that started as a yoga teacher and then finds a cult. So, wow. For now, that takes us to the end of part one of The Family, the most notorious cult in Australia. Make sure to join me in the next episode to figure out what truly happens to this cult and how this cult becomes one of the most notorious cases that there is to tell about cults. I really cannot wait to just wrap this all up for you guys. Thank you for listening and sitting with me through this first part of this case. At the time of this recording, you will have your next episode on Friday. Sorry about the little delay there. I just wanted to make sure that this case is really something that I honed in on. And don't forget to add or just follow on Instagram at WTLGO Podcast. Please do not forget to like and subscribe from wherever you are listening. Do not also forget to tell everyone you know that likes true crime, that likes paranormal, that this show is a show for them. Thank you all so, so much for listening once again, and I will see you next when the light goes out.